0: Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast.
1: Dr. Carol Liao is an associate professor at the Allard School of Law and the UBC Sauder Distinguished Scholar of the Dillon Center for Business Ethics. She is the director of the Center for Business Law, a national research center that also oversees the business law concentration and two experiential learning programs at Allard Law, the Business Law Clinic, and Corporate Council Externship. Prior to UBC, Dr. Liao was a faculty member at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law, where she received the Law Student Society First Year Class Teaching Award. Her research focuses on business law, corporate governance, corporate sustainability, and business ethics. She is the recipient of the 2021 Influential Women in Business Award, an award that recognizes leaders in their respective field for contributing their time and expertise to the broader BC business community as board members, advisors, donors, and mentors.
0: Prior to academia, Dr. Liu was a senior associate at the New York
1: Mergers and Acquisitions
0: Group of Sharon and Sterling LLP, where she represented public and private multinational corporations in a variety of transactional and governance matters. On behalf of the firm, she also served as a legal researcher for the Office of the Prosecutor on Location at the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal of Rwanda and was featured in the New York Law Journal for her pro bono asylum work. She is also a former Judicial Clerk of the BC Court of Appeal.
1: So thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Leal, and we want to start off with an icebreaker question. So I noticed in an article that you wrote that you mentioned you're Taiwanese-Canadian. And I'm also Taiwanese, so I was really happy to find that similarity. So our icebreaker question of the day is, <laughs> what is your favorite Taiwanese dish?
2: Oh, that's a hard one. I guess I'd say bubble Is bubble tea a dish? <laughs> and bubble waffles? My kids love those too. Is yeah. xiaolongbao bao Taiwanese? I think it originated in china but it's the taiwanese made it famous so i love xiaolongbao, yeah. um, yeah. soup dumplings for those that don't you know well how she won want Bao. so that's my favorite <laughs> so, so that's my answer for that if it counts <laughs> Xiaolongbao's
0: have been a reoccurring theme in our podcast episodes um if anyone has listened to any of our previous episodes uh the final question for our guests would be <laughs> if you prefer pan fried buns or steamed buns
2: oh pan fried for sure we'll just dive into our very first
0: topic uh which we would like to learn more about your diverse experiences and success as a racialized lawyer and academic and so professor you've got a diverse array of experiences and we were wondering if you could give us a brief overview of your time as a corporate lawyer and what led you back to academia
2: Oh, okay. Um, Thanks. Well, first, thanks so much for inviting me. This is really exciting to be on this podcast. Um, And Well, I graduated from law school in 2003, and I had done my um, 2L summer at Sherman & Sterling in New York. And I returned there uh, after I clerked. So I was an associate in the mergers and acquisitions group uh, for a number of years. Uh, And I loved it. It was exhausting and it was exhilarating being on deals like that and seeing him in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. But, you know, it was unsustainable for me personally. I'd be clocking in 80 to 100 hours a week uh, every week. I had a pillow, toiletries in my office. I saw uh, 4 4 a.m. more often than I care to admit. And so, you know, when I was a fifth year associate and three months pregnant at the time, I, I quit. Uh, It just wasn't tenable for me anymore to do those kinds of hours. So, you know, lots of people in New York do it and while raising a family and kudos to them, right? It just wasn't something that I was willing to take on. So my husband and I moved back to Vancouver uh, and I became a stay-at-home mom for several years while doing graduate school and having... Um, more babies and uh by luck it eventually led to an academic job wow
0: i, I can't imagine what the corporate life in new york must, must have been like uh did you have roots to new york at all or did you just decide to go out there
2: and- no no nope, none at all zero so we just went because we thought it'd be exciting and it was exciting new york is a is a wonderful city and i re- highly recommend it to anyone who can live in the city to do that for for a while if you can yeah
0: yeah, I'm sure it would be the experience of a lifetime. So uh, I noticed that you did write this article on anti-Asian racism early on in the summer of 2020 when we saw a spike in the anti-Asian hate crimes during COVID-19. And I believe this was written about exactly a year ago. And obviously things have worsened much more for the Asian community since then. And so I raised this because you know we were just talking about New York and you know we've also seen so many instances down south that there's been an insane spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. And so, Professor Lau, I was wondering, like, in what ways do you think Asian Canadian lawyers can support our community at home and also our neighbors down south?
2: Oh, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, You know, I have a lot to say, so maybe I'll just sort of start by saying, um, you know, last year when I was speaking with my um, parents, I felt like for some of the older generations, there was almost this resignation over this racism, right? That it was inevitable and almost their burden that they had to bear as immigrants here being, you know, regarded as these perpetual foreigners. And there was this real deep reluctance for some to speak out against the racism, right? Like out of fear or concern that they're just going to be looked upon even more as an outsider here and that we should just be quiet and take it. It was almost this generational thing in terms of the different reactions to this heightened and really flagrant racism, and I also think Asian parents in particular don't like to share their pain with their children, right? They'll hide it to protect them, but just enough's enough, and I think our older generations are feeling more emboldened now, too. Um, They'll speak out to protect future generations, and I am also speaking out to protect them, and a year ago, you know, I was writing op-eds, delivering radio and TV interviews in response to the rising anti-Asian racism right like trump was practically welcoming it it was calling you know, calling it the kung flu and even our local vancouver newspapers were calling it the china virus the province headlined it on their front page and then we had politicians like derek sloan making these claims racist claims against teresa tam uh dr teresa tam the cultural sites being defaced And just, you know, these stories of violence were almost appearing every day. And do I wanna be here saying the same things from a year ago? You know, with hate crimes in Vancouver up over 700% and seeing Asian people and Asian looking people getting randomly punched and pushed on the street, uh, with elderly people and walkers getting tripped, Mm -hmm. those are just the ones caught on video. And, you know, with the bystanders that just walk on by, that hurts almost just as much and every time I hear about another anti-Asian hate crime it demoralizes me a lot and that's why I think solidarity is important and Asian Canadian lawyers shouldn't be silent about this right like it's a privilege to be a lawyer it comes with power and responsibilities and you know I that's why I'm so grateful for FACL and all the work you guys do to amplify voices of Asian Canadian lawyers and I think that You know, um, one thing we can do in addition to donating to organizations that have been fighting anti-Asian racism for a long time is to speak out publicly, or at least within your organization, um, you know, and uh, just express how this is something that actually matters and we need to combat that. And, you know, there's overt racism. There's also systemic racism too. And I think that for a lot of us, it's very easy for people to obviously denounce hate crimes, right? For the majority of us, that's, that's true. But there's just a lot of racism that's built institutionally that we also need to be vocal about um, that I think... You know, stems from that. So I don't know if that's an answer, but uh, but there are a lot of ways that Asian Canadian lawyers can support the community, and certainly uh, one just starts by finding their voice and speaking out on these things.
0: Definitely, and that's one of the things that Faculty BC does strive to do. Um, you mentioned earlier that the province last year released a problematic headline uh, referencing COVID-19 as the China virus, and that was something that Faculty BC actually released a statement on. Uh, we condemned yeah. the use of that because. The province, obviously, it's one of the most widely distributed newspapers in British Columbia. And so the impact of its journalism is quite far-reaching and significant. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we like called on the province and not just the province, but other newspapers, uh, the need to exercise greater responsibility and cultural sensitivity in reporting on the COVID-19. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, it's so important. I feel like there's just, there needs to be a bit more recognition, I feel like, um, in our society on, realities that are stemming from history, right?
1: So to follow up on what you were saying about being more vocal as Asian Canadian lawyers, Um, As a racialized woman in the legal profession and in academia, how do you make your voice heard? And what are strategies that you employ to feel empowered to use your voice?
2: Oh, um, so, well, yeah, I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of panels, interviews, uh, podcasts like this wonderful one. Uh, I teach, which is obviously an easy platform and opportunities for teachable moments and learning in the classroom on unpacking power, particularly in my field of corporate law and governance. Um, I think having a healthy dose of confidence <laughs> really works in your favor. And I've built a lot of networks as an academic. And nowadays, social media can be a handy platform to amplify what you want to say. You can write it, say it, disseminate it, and take the opportunities as they come. I've never had an East Asian professor in my life. <laughs> I think about that. Um, and or, or even a racialized teacher in grade school. Um I had one in Chinese school when I was younger, but never in public school or university. And so I don't know um, what that would have meant to me to have had something like that. But I do know how it feels whenever I see an Asian person speaking in public or performing in a way that I don't see often, uh, you know, like doesn't fit the stereotypes and And sometimes, you know, I put this immense pressure on myself because I wonder if some of my students are feeling the same way I do when I see an Asian woman doing something that doesn't fit the stereotypes that are thrust upon us. And I know some of them do because they tell me or they write me after and tell me. (laughs) And so I beat myself up if I don't do well, uh, if I flub up something and just wasn't hitting the mark that day. But then I forgive myself and I move on because I know uh, just having the space is important. And hopefully with time, there will be more racialized women in leadership roles and public facing roles that it won't seem so rare and deeply important not to mess up those scarce opportunities.
0: I can't uh, stress enough the importance of uh, you using your voice. I know that even before meeting you uh, today through this podcast recording, uh, I've already heard so much about you. I know last yeah. year you wrote that piece uh, that was published on our's website on power, gender and race in the legal profession. And so, you know, uh, you mentioned a lot about doing public engagements, appearing at different speaker events and it, like showing up on podcasts and, and uh, doing a variety of different engagements. And uh, of course, that has been picked up by the legal community and also in the Vancouver business community. And so we noticed that you were recently awarded one of, one of the 2021 Influential Women in Business
2: Award. And so we were wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Well, thank you, um Yeah, it was a huge honour. I mean, I think it's a bit unusual for an academic to receive this award. So it was really fun and really a deep privilege to be recognised for the impact my work has had on industry, right? Like, I appreciate the opportunities I've been given to foster change. And it also isn't lost on me that racialized and Indigenous women are notably underrepresented in leadership roles in the business sector and in academia. I mean, I guess if I had to reflect upon it I think one thing people aren't really aware of so much because you know a lot of our perceptions are anecdotal but if you look at the stats power is very dispersed very unequally in Canada right like maybe to some that's very obvious but to others it isn't so much and who holds power in society often dictates how communities thrive and how our most vulnerable in society are protected right and um So I feel like this type of award is an opportunity to kind of help amplify voices in a way. And it also to me almost obligates those of us that have been granted that platform to advocate for um, others. And I I think so for me, if it advances my opportunities to speak on these issues, I'll do it. (laughs) So I guess uh, those are my general reflections on that award.
0: So I was wondering, um, like, do you have any maybe goals uh, in the future in terms of uh, your path as an academia? Is there anything else that you'd like to accomplish within maybe the next five or 10 years that, that you're working towards right now, if you don't mind sharing?
2: Oh, no, (laughs) I'm very happy to have tenure now. And I've got a lot of projects on the go. uh, For sure. Right. Like, I mean, to me, uh, this next decade is a really crucial one. Right. Um, Right now I'm working on a Shirk project uh, where I'm doing an empirical study on uh, sustainable corporate governance in Canada uh, with the promise of a monograph, you know, a book at the end and some journal publications and op-eds in between. My project is on redrawing the governance landscape. You know, the reports that are coming out now don't go far enough in addressing the problem. And climate science and corporate law is going to need to integrate better. And so that's one big project that I'm working on. I'm also very interested in Um, increasing diversity in leadership roles. And in Canada, 4% of TSX listed companies have female CEOs. Only 20% of board seats are held by women and less than 6% are held by racialized people uh, and less than 1% are indigenous peoples. And so, you know, you combine then race and gender and and what have you got, right? Like the, the numbers are minimal. racialized and indigenous women, the numbers are far lower. As for academia and leadership roles, you know, across 15 universities in Canada, the research shows that it is overwhelmingly white with 50% uh, plus white men and 40% white women. You know, white women have actually made a lot of inroads in academia and that's great, right? But then you break down the numbers, the the rest, you know, 9% are racialized men and less than a percent For racialized women and indigenous men and indigenous women don't even appear in the statistics right and the covid pandemic um has only exacerbated inequalities and it's threatening to undo the limited advancements women have made over the years this on the projects i'm working on i mean um one of them is just thinking about um how we advance diversity in leadership roles, because I feel that that in sustainable business is completely tied. And so for the past several years, uh, my industry partner Shona McGlashan and I have been delivering uh, workshops, um, you know, like talking about equity, diversity and inclusion and unconscious bias. And um, these aren't, you know, like one and done. These are actually to whet the appetite of the organization saying you, this is a problem and you need to be aware of it. Most organizations have diversity policies, right? And we have a lot of proclamations, but, and a lot of people in leadership think that their organizations are diverse. Survey found that 81% of directors think this. So we have to recognize that we often define equality and diversity through the view of people of power. But if we defined it from the view of people who are powerless, uh, we'll get a lot of different answers. I think that there's just a lot of work to do. And so I feel like it's going to be a very busy next five to 10 years talking about where I want my research to go and how I want it to influence.
1: Yeah, those are all really important points that you brought up. And Yeah, I really appreciate that you brought up that it's important to hear from um, marginalized communities from racialized communities um, and from indigenous communities and I recently attended a talk with Dr. Hadia Roderick. And she kind of talked about the importance of that and so it's really great that you're also talking about Mm -hmm. it and it's great to see um, women of color in leadership positions such as yourself.
0: Dr. Lau, also just want to jump in and say like, thank you for providing those really helpful statistics, uh, really helps paint a realistic picture of what's going on in the legal profession and also just in terms of uh, like big corporate structures, uh, that, that's what going, what's going on right now. And so um, if I could just dive in real quick here, I recently attended a CBA event uh, held by the Women's Lawyers Forum and uh, they provided some you know, really eye-opening statistics on intersectional pay gaps as well. And so very quickly, Indigenous women working full-time full year, they earned an average of 35% less than non-Indigenous men. For racialized women working full-time and full year, they earned an average of 33% less than non-racialized men. And for newcomer women working full-time and full year they earn on average of 29 percent less than non-newcomer men and finally women with a disability who are working full and part-time earn approximately 54 cents to the dollar when compared to the earnings of non-disabled men and so these statistics are all from the Canadian Women's Foundation fact sheet it helps highlight uh, how much of an issue we have and how much work needs to be done in the coming years.
2: Oh yeah and you know this is the thing too and this was sort of the puzzlement that uh uh, you know, all these diverse initiatives that are taking place, all, the, all that we've seen over the years, the policies, the public statements, yet the numbers don't seem to move much at all, right? And so, you know, what I've realized is that for some organizations, because, you know, there are certainly those that don't even have these types of policies or, you know, that, that, that bury it, right? But what I've realized for those organizations that do is that you can have the best policies But what happens is that something occurs at the local level which circumvents whatever clear policies you have right like discrimination starts at recruiting methods and it continues in how we support and promote women of color within our organizations right people just need to be more self-aware of the biases that they have and not be complicit when this type of behavior is exhibited in others these are empirical studies have shown Uh, time and again these things the glass ceiling the bamboo ceiling the motherhood penalty gender and racial devaluation at work uh, white supremacy you know me too and black lives matter have really helped to bring a lot of difficult conversations about misogyny and systemic racism to the forefront but again There's just a lot of work to do. And there's both individual things that can be done as well as institutional things. And they have to, you know, it's a a multifaceted problem that requires a multifaceted solution. And in a way, we need to come at it from every angle in order to move numbers even a bit. I mean, it took ages to even get to the point where we're at close to 6% of racialized people in the boardroom. Right. Like and this is just not at all representative of what we have in society and in academia. Right. Like there's clearly a ceiling where uh, people of color do not advance. And so that's why, you know, right now with the anti-Asian racism, uh, that's just prevalent and disgusting. You know, we go in, Sean and I go into our sessions and we talk about how, you know, like, what about bystander interventions, right? And we talk about would you intervene? And, you know, for a lot of us, uh, we almost want to feel really good about, of course we would, because that's just horrid to call someone a racial slur, to tell them to go back to where they came, you know, like these are horrible things. But then I flip it and I say, you know, cause you know, my, my space is in the leadership era and, and I say, you would intervene on the street, but you know, how about in a hiring room, <laughs> would you, you know, would you be okay having this person part of your team? Would you support them when they advance, you know, how about advance past you? right? Like they're, they're, there's the being supportive when the person's in a point of weakness. There's another in being an ally and being supportive when you're a colleague or if you are. To me, it's not so, it's, we almost, we want to compartmentalize things. We want to feel like good people, but it's not about, it's not about good or bad. It's about identifying um, some of the inherent our brains are wired to make shortcuts we want we want to make shortcuts
0: do you agree that in terms of addressing anti-racism um it is important to not just intervene uh when you see someone being hurled racial slurs on the street like it's also important to take action through different ways um whether it be through the boardroom and the hiring committee or otherwise but there are definitely different ways to combat it and um yeah it requires the collective efforts of all especially not just the not just the people who are part of the BIPOC community we did want to talk a little bit about uh, these two globe and mail articles that we recently saw um it, again it kind of goes back to the whole pay equity uh, conversation we were having earlier um so the globe and mail recently released an article on how female partners earned nearly 25 percent less than their male colleagues at a major toronto law firm um, and as of yesterday, the Global Mail released another article that said at another major Bay Street law firm, male equity partners earn an average of 17% more than their female counterparts overall. But the wage gap does disappear among those who have been practicing for two decades or less. And so, yeah, like, these are just like statistics that we would like to highlight for our uh, for our listeners.
2: There's a lot to be said. I mean, there's a lot of statistics. Um, and, and, and sometimes I feel like showing people the research I'm a researcher, right, and and you can't ignore the science. If anything, right now, we are learning how important science is, (laughs) right? And research. And, you know, it is disturbing sometimes seeing how um, much our biases influence our actions. I, I, I don't know how to begin about it, but I mean, we're all sort of situated And we need to be cognizant of where we are situated and use what power and influence we have in that for good, you know, and and to speak out and to speak up. And there's a picture right now that we show in our workshops um, where we have a. Women of color that enter a profession and there's and, and it shows how they go through this sort of honeymoon period where it's oh we're so glad you're here it's all wonderful and then when they start when the woman starts to voice her uh, perspective right like then it it starts to change a little bit like you know tries to elicit change in the organization it can be a real challenge right and um, and then and then things start to turn and then and then there goes through a period where there's more hostility it's, it becomes a very challenging uh racial environment where they're tokenized they're expected to kind of address racial disparities they're 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 you know they're sort of um, questioned and then and then eventually they leave and um the reality is that they often say that um y- y- they get asked why they leave and they say, you know, it was a hostile environment, I wasn't, I was not thriving there, I couldn't move up, I had a lot of stress. But then when they interviewed the people in the organization, they say, oh, they found a better opportunity, oh, they wanted to spend more time with their family, like, and then they actually find a disparity between the white respondents and the racialized respondents as to why the person left. This study that I'm citing, Um, you know, examined this phenomenon, uh, you know, like, across several focus groups, and over several years across several organizations, and found this pattern. Um, And so, you know, as someone who has gotten to this point, it's much easier. I mean, again, being an academic is such a privilege, I really can write on whatever I want. And in that, I feel this huge obligation to say these things, because to say it, as the woman of color in the organization, it's so risky, you get, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, defensiveness. And, and so, to the extent I can go into organizations and share the research, uh, or talk about it openly in in these types of forums, to at least, first of all, um, let women know, (laughs) this is occurring. And by the way, you know, I, I want to just say too, um, it's not that men are inflicting it on women. We're all inflicting it on women, right? Internalized misogyny runs uh deep. And and white supremacy, you you can be uh racialized and certainly have white supremacy type preferences, some that you may be aware of and others you you may not, right? Like we I, I make my students Google professor and images and say, what do you see here? I I don't look like that professor. In fact, the cartoons, they're saying, oh, some of them are cartoons. I mean, that's even worse. You draw a professor and you draw an old white male, right? Like, you know, and so I know when I walk into a classroom um, every time, it's it's always nerve wracking, right? But you've, you know, you've got to, you know that there's something in their brains that are going, this is different right Like and and so that's why, in a way, there's a lot of pressure too that you gotta you gotta hit home runs at the start, right? Like just to win them over. And, and then it's later on in the term that I um, in with opportunities I have to bring up diversity and bias and you know, like power um in governance, I talk about board diversity and uh, you know these things. that's when I that's when I, know bring up the statistics right and so it's a careful dance in a way to change people's minds um and sometimes there's something helpful too and just some laws that'll do like i'm for quotas now by the way in boards i was never before because i didn't want people to feel forced but then i realized you know sometimes you need to just open the door And however way it gets opened. And then after that, then they'll see the value. Um, And there's just been too many years. We've had a comply or explain regime in um, Canada for a very long time now, since 2015, I think in Ontario and uh, most provinces, not BC yet, but have adopted this comply or explain regime, like you have to uh, explain why you don't have uh, why your number your gender <laughs> numbers are the way they are, but um, you know that's moved it incrementally every year.
0: Um, like really great points. And one of our questions was actually like, if you have any words of advice or wisdom for racialized lawyers on how to succeed, whether it be in the legal profession or for those who are seeking to follow your footsteps.
2: People ask me for advice all the time, and I often caveat what I'm going to say by explaining that my advice falls into two buckets. Uh, The first bucket is my advice, given the context of how the legal profession and academia is right now, and then advice and and advice on how to succeed within that very biased and imperfect system. And the second bucket is advice on how I think it should be. And I feel like I've spent a lot of this interview talking about what I think it should be. So so that's good. Um, uh, But, you know, they are different bits of advice the advice you give to individuals applying for jobs is different than the advice you give the people running the organizations and the people doing the hiring. Just like, you just say, you've got to, you know, like you got to open your eyes here. Whereas for the interviewee, it's different, right? Like, and so impress those senior to you, right. But more importantly, uh, I think try to build a book of business. Okay. So, so this is my brutal, not very, um, Okay. what i'll say is that clients are the currency in the legal profession okay as is bringing deals if you're an m&a lawyer anyway and i know many people that were made partner in new york because the client said you better do that or i'm taking my business elsewhere so cultivate those clients they may be the leverage you need if those internally are unwilling to promote you as for um legal academia, again, purely talking in the first bucket here on how to survive within a very imperfect system, you know, and for those who want to get into legal academia, have a conversation with me first, because I, um, you know, I, I think a lot about how I played my chess moves wrong. And it's just by virtue of a lot of different variables, some most out of my control, but some in my control that led me to here, but it was like winning the lottery in a lot of ways. But, you know, publish your butt off peer reviewed in peer reviewed journals that Canadian faculty members will recognize because I've seen enough being dismissed unfairly, you know, but and and grow a public presence. You know, legal academia is largely about finding people who can vouch for you and write recommendations, letters for you. It's called the ivory tower for a lot of reasons. So produce good quality research and make sure it gets read by the right people. But that's That's it. Yeah. I guess for me, it's like, you know, the, the stuff like be authentic and be yourself. (laughs) Like the truth is I find that also a very um, kind of Western concept, like um, the be yourself. So to me, um, that has never really worked for me that advice, right? Like I think in truth, I've always sort of thought about how, you know, what is it that they seem to value in a way I've always thought of myself as like a ninja feminist in a way like because I'm like look when you know you can shout from the bottom or you can travel up and then explode in your greatness after they have after you've gotten the power and platform you need
1: <laughs> and we really give that advice like whenever someone tells me just be yourself like I don't know what to say about that <laughs> that's so vague like I don't know like how to be myself sometimes, depending on the room I'm in. Um, But just to follow up up on that, um, I guess from a more personal perspective, uh, what advice would you give uh, specifically for racialized law students or articling students who are starting out in their legal profession in how they can better advocate for themselves and especially when they face uh, microaggressions or uh, racism in the workplace?
2: You know, um, that's such a tough question, um, because it depends to what, what it is that is being, um, I I think that there are some firms that actually have people that are in charge of, you know, like diversity and inclusion and things like that. And I would find them and make friends with them early on. I would make, uh, I would try and create networks. Look, mentoring is a huge thing in the legal profession. That's the truth. You know, I say to my students, um, when I go through a contract drafting exercise with them, I said, right now, it's the beautiful luxury of education. When you enter into a law firm, your education is going to be dependent on those senior to you offering their time up, right? And, And I remember those times when, you know, one of the, most wonderful senior partners um George Casey from Sherman and Sterling he took me under his wing and he you know like showed me the innards of a contract and you know like would would go over things I had done and said you know this works and this doesn't work why and I learned from that and you know it's it's the mentoring is um so valuable and so that's why it's so scary in a way that it is just sort of doled out unevenly in a lot of ways in these law firms and so um, and and obviously you can see how that disadvantages. Uh, some people in particular where you know the person senior doesn't see themselves in the junior um, associate rising up right I, I guess what I would say is do your best to try and find those people that you can trust. They may be, you know, uh, at your level, they may be, you know, like they may be senior to you, they may be outside the firm, you know, like, but just find your support network and try and um, find your education, right? Like as you're advancing. And I think external validation helps a lot if you're not gonna get it inside. firm okay it sure helps when someone externally says hey you're an influential woman in business (laughs) right like and 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 then you know like then everyone inside goes oh oh you must be i i did realize your worth (laughs) so now now i'm seeing it a bit more right like and and so i i think that you can also look externally as well outside your organization in order to find um that support and validation that you may need too. And um and, and I I've always found networks really helpful. And and make sure they're inclusive networks too. Because some like I think that women have been doing that for that that's been advice women have been getting for a long time, right? You know, like they and sometimes those networks can seem very it's scary if they actually exclude um people more marginalized than you. And so I think that be thoughtful in, you know, like who you are networking with and also who you um, make sure you don't exclude people from that support. I feel like sometimes the most generous people are the ones that get the most back. And this idea of relationships, it's just so important, I think. And that to me is kind of one of the best ways for someone junior to succeed to have someone have your back at the senior level priceless right uh, other advice I've never really known what to do with was like just say no and I'm like just say no like, I don't, uh, that is, that's a really hard thing to implement when you are junior and you're trying to you know like do well and you're feeling overworked to just say no. And I've had, you know, a lot of my students call me um, in their early years, um, really struggling with that. And I mean, I have different ploys and tactics to, to give them that I would individualize for whoever's listening now, um, you know, but Sometimes you go well. What would make that person think it's okay for you to say no? Probably because you're too busy doing something else. So maybe you get the uh, that other person that's supervising your other file to talk to that. You know, like you know, let the let the big folks work it out, right? Like these are these are to me perhaps more effective strategies than putting the onus entirely on uh, on you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree. Um, this is actually some of the words of advice I've gotten to going into my article year. And I do really uh, realize the importance of having someone more senior support you. And especially with what you just said, uh, like during times where you have competing work obligations, sometimes it's just easier to tell them, hey, you know, uh, I would love to take this on, but I cannot right now because I'm doing something for ex-lawyer. And, you know, if they really have an issue or a pressing urgency where they need you to get this done right now, they would go talk to ex-lawyer and you would let them hash yeah. it instead of putting you in the awkward middle position
2: to be like no sorry I can't do it um well absolutely but, <laughs> but see that's the thing is that solution only it only solves um the position when you're so overworked that you have them say well, what if you want to say no because you want to have a life maybe you want to you know like have a Saturday to not work right like that Um, How do you say no to that. And that's why I feel like so much of it is also a structural thing and something that the onus should be put on the legal profession and the employers, you know, to be kind of aware of that. We have a lot of work to do in terms of work life balance, for sure
0: yeah I think one thing I also really realized in my past year is that I think it's important for people at the senior level to learn how to set boundaries because when partners for example are okay with working throughout the whole weekend or responding ASAP to client inquiries and client emails they kind of expect the junior associates or the students on the file to do the same whereas I've definitely worked with different partners who have a, a different working style where they say you know well this is not urgent right now why don't we take the weekend off and then we'll pick this back up on Monday and so there there are times when there are partners who have different working styles, and I do really, really appreciate the times when partners are the one who kind of, um, you know, put the brake on things and say, you know what, like you should go out there and enjoy your weekend, uh, you've had a really long week, you've worked really hard, definitely appreciate and realize the importance of uh, senior partners advocating for their juniors as well. And yeah. so I guess like to end, um, you know, in addition to advice for students, your other advice uh, for people entering legal academia is to, you know, publish more, especially <laughs> reputable journals, um, get out there and network because we just cannot underestimate the value of networking in the legal profession. Um, and and then for people who are currently in the legal profession a word of advice is to cultivate that book of clients I think I think that's what gives you the most leverage and you know gives you the most uh it gives you a strong business case
2: I mean you know like hearing back the advice I just gave I'm like oh you know one thing I want to correct no. is um it's not published in reputable journals it's published in journals that Canadian faculty will recognize okay. because that's how biased it is you know, like that, I mean, I'm just speaking the truth here, which is that I've realized when, um, look, merit can be a very moving target in academia. And that's the problem, right? And I mean, that's a whole other podcast and paper. Um, but, you know, and, and I feel like not that many people listening will probably be interested in legal academia. But if they are, again, feel free to reach out to me because I have a lot more advice to give um, on that. But for the legal profession, I feel a lot of sympathy for the generation coming up. It's not a fair. Uh, in fact, I find myself apologizing to a lot of my I'm Gen X, right? Like I, I mean, I graduated from law school over 20 years, like, well, almost 20 years ago. Um, but I feel like this next generation um is inheriting a, a world that, you know. Uh, environmental and social crises have really defined most of your young adult lives right and this pandemic now is just a permanent imprint um in your real formative years and so if anything this pandemic should be putting pressure on those in power to change things and because it's you know it it's not looking good and what can we do to create more transformative change in how we do business and how we value people provide meaningful work i mean because it's so fascinating how we have overworked lawyers and also an access to justice crisis i mean and and so this gap in also affordability and, and this this gap in who's receiving legal services. It's just a a monster problem that leadership in the area, and you know, I know a lot of the folks that are trying to combat these issues and I'm grateful to them, right? And we all kind of have, again, our role to play. Um, I was just on a, listening to a panel where they're talking about, it's like you're in a chorus and every once in a while someone needs to take a breath, right, and we all have our different parts, uh, but in that, it's hoping to move things forward. It's very difficult, right, without collaborative and collective efforts. But I think it's it can't be borne on those junior lawyers, you know, like trying to just sort it out and, you know, like figure things out in the future we've handed to them. It's got to be those of us that are now in those positions of power to really try and move the dial for sure.
0: Thank you. And I'm sure our listeners who are, you know, who belong to the more junior demographic uh, at Faculty BC very much appreciate those
2: words. You know, well, I'll just, you know, finish by saying that I feel like uh, we're living in this intergenerational moral storm, right? Like future generations are going to hold the greatest share of the burden uh, created by climate change and uh, entrenched social inequities. And I'm so proud of the next generation of young women rising in the ranks during this critical juncture in our corporate history. And, you know, it's really not too late for business strategies and theories to be uh, redrawn. I think that this intersection between law, sustainability, ethical business is just growing more and more significant each day. And, uh, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion in leadership is just integral to sustainable business i mean things just go they go hand in hand
0: well i cannot agree
2: more with what you've
0: said today professor Lau. this brings our episode to an end so i wanted to wrap up by saying thank you so much for your time and sharing your research insight and guidance with our faculty bc members thank you for tuning into the faculty bc podcast visit our website at facultybc.ca and follow us on facebook instagram and linkedin at faculty bc we hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest if you have guest speaker suggestions,
1: please email us at membership at facultybc.ca.